The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Set us free, loving Father, from the bondage of our sins. And in your goodness and mercy, give us the liberty of that abundant life which you have made known to us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the book of Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. A reading from 1 Peter. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by, your, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say to these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, We are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. When the ten heard it, they were indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus said to them, to him who said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Well, good morning. Um, I'm Pastor Andine O'Neill. Usually I'm over there at the piano or the guitar. Um, sometimes I get to preach, and it's a privilege to do that today. Um, so are you guys excited? Yeah. We're about to address submission as it applies to slaves and masters and wives and husbands. It's going to be great. Everyone's favorite passage, right? Well, I'm going to first start with a story. I saw a video entitled, Pregnancy Reveal Goes Wrong. In the video, a woman is recording herself handing a man a present. She's clearly excited. He's clearly confused. He opens the decorated lid, it's all wrapped nice, and sees a positive test, lifts it out of the box, and immediately looks distressed and concerned. He stammers, what? I have a trip next week. As a viewer, I actually got upset at this. I was expecting something weird to happen in the video. I didn't expect the guy to be so unkind. He continues, I have to go on this trip. My grandma is not okay. The woman says, 
um, why can't you go on your trip? Do you see what you're holding? He's still confused, and he responds, why are you videoing this? Why are you telling me like this? The woman has a lot of patience and just asks again about what he's holding, and then the man, frustrated, responds, so you're telling me you have COVID. (laughs) So you see what I'm doing here, right? The passage is tricky, but don't mistake it for what it's not. Or you might skip over it and not glean the beautiful depths that are there. Also, I'm sorrowfully aware of the ways this passage has been misapplied and caused oppressive behavior in our past and in our present. And we honor God in all oppressed brothers and sisters when we humble ourselves before the word and seek right understanding. And here's what I've seen as I've tried to do that this week. There is a great gift in submission, a gift to yourself and a gift for the world. And it's a palpable freedom only found in following Christ's example. In order to understand this, we're going to answer the three following questions together. One, why is Peter focusing on concepts of submission? Two, what's he trying to incite among this persecuted people of faith? It was a time of intense persecution. And three, why does freedom in Christ have everything to do with submission. So question one, why is Peter focusing on concepts of submission? He zeroes in first on authorities and citizens. That was last week. And today we continue to focus and look at slaves and masters and wives and husbands. It's tempting to feel like this passage was intended to devalue slaves and women. And there is irony in that because Peter was actually trying to do something very different and he had good reasons for doing it. But to understand this, we need to take a look at how first century culture viewed such hierarchical relationships. First, let's take slaves. In first century Greco-Roman culture, slaves were not at all considered full persons. There were a lot of people in this little station of life, at least a third of the population, maybe a lot more. And they did every kind of job. Some slaves were actually treated well, paid for their work, and might even own some property. But some were horribly, tragically abused. Essentially, slaves did not have rights as a person. It was entirely up to their masters as to how they were treated. Aristotle, which was 4th century BC, but kind of set up this time, said injustice could never be done to a slave. They were mere property. Even if a slave was freed, they were not considered a freeborn person. They were the lesser freed person. Plutarch in the 1st century during this time called slaves mere living tools. Friends, The gospel does not stand for this. According to Jesus, slaves were now free in Christ. The station of their soul, their personhood, was validated as whole and worthy of love, worthy even of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, in the same way that their master's was. Galatians 3.28 from Paul, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This made Christianity attractive and profoundly transformative to slaves, and thus it was spreading. These verses in 1 Peter are certainly not an abolitionist essay, and I just need to add that, yes, all slavery and related sinful human structures needed to cease in light of the gospel, but it might help us understand Peter to remember that his audience and he himself lived in an imperial state, 
They did not have a representative government where common people had any sway or voted. The rulers made the rules and average people navigated their way through. So it's important to understand these norms were not being introduced by Peter. He was speaking to the reality the church was born into. But Peter knows the slaves' newfound freedom in Christ changed their lives. So how should it change their relationships in this hierarchical structure? You might imagine that in a time of persecution, slaves were especially vulnerable to extra oppression if masters felt disobeyed on account of this dangerous new religion granting freedom to their slaves. Peter seeks to address these things. Secondly, let's take wives in Greco-Roman culture. Aristotle, again, said wives should be like subjects under rulers. Plutarch said a wife should not have friends, that a wife should speak only to her husband or through him. Women's words were considered untrustworthy. Their presence in public were suspect. Chastity was a prized virtue in this time, but guess what? Mainly for the wife. If a husband in Greco-Roman culture chose not to sleep with a slave, that was surprisingly honorable of him, like extra credit honor. If a woman purposely turned a blind eye should her husband choose to sleep with a slave, then that was considered honorable of her. She was not considered a full person, not considered worthy of the same respect and honor as those she was subject to. Friends, the gospel does not stand for this. Jesus clearly taught and demonstrated the incredible value and importance of women, of their presence, think of Mary and Martha, their words, who were the first to report the resurrection, of the value of honoring them in marriage by forbidding adultery of any kind. The New Testament scriptures bear witness to this again and again. We could repeat, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These powerful cultural norms were being reworked and reframed in light of the gospel. This was radically transformative for this time. Again, just like how these verses on slavery are no abolitionist movement, these verses on women are also not a treatise for redefining marital behavior in Peter's day. But it was recognizing that Christian wives, and especially those whose husbands were not Christians, were in a vulnerable, subordinate relationship. Women were supposed to take on the god or gods of their husband. Now, some women went to worship a god that their husbands didn't approve of. And women women held positions in the church they would have not been allowed to hold in society at that time. To first century philosopher Porphyry as an example, this was scandalous. Fearful. How is this dynamic to be worked out? In addition to recognizing the vulnerable position these wives were in, Peter also knew what a powerful witness these Christian women could have. If their husbands could come to know Jesus through their wives, more would be saved and the wife's position would become less vulnerable. There's a way in which Peter wants the subordinates in their culture to be above reproach or critique from those who are ready to accuse or attack. He wanted to care for them and to strengthen their witness. You might be asking yourself, Wait, how do you know Peter was presuming their freedom and mutual value in Christ? Well, there is one huge textual clue. Ancient non-biblical essays codifying hierarchical relationships were really common, and they always included the same set of principles. The general line of thought would be, attention, for the benefit of society, let it be so that God or God's rule man, 
Governments rule citizens, masters rule slaves, and husbands rule wives. Do you know who they always wrote these essays to? Whom the recipients always were? Only the rulers, the masters, the men. Only to those deemed fully persons and never addressed to any subordinates. Only in the New Testament do we see similar household codes but directly addressed to slaves and to women. This was unheard of. They are worthy recipients of the gospel, equal members of God's family, and therefore recipients of genuine pastoral concern. As a commentator said, this was written by the underclass for the underclass, not the, over- not the overlord. The irony here is that our initial reaction to this text, very understandably, can be that Peter's promoting oppression when actually the original text was written in order to protect a minority faith from persecution and help create an atmosphere for growth. Peter knew the gospel made for a radical transformation in women's and slaves' lives. It declared what was already true, that they are whole and valued persons, not deserving of oppression. We'll come back to that. And that this new dynamic of freedom and submission needed to be worked out thoughtfully. So why is Peter focusing on concepts of submission? Because the gospel made the culturally subordinate free and whole persons in Christ. And again, it's amazing. There's a great gift in submission. And it's a gift to yourself and a gift to the world. And it's a palpable freedom only found in following Christ's example. This brings us to our second question. What change is Peter trying to incite among this persecuted people of faith? Well, it comes down to this gift of submission. And it's important to stop here before we go any further. further, And I'm going to quote the wise Richard Foster in Celebration of Disciplines. Of all the spiritual disciplines, none has been more abused than the discipline of submission. Somehow the human species has an extraordinary knack for taking the best teaching and turning it to its worst ends. Nothing can put people into bondage like religion, And nothing in religion has done more to manipulate and destroy people than a deficient teaching on submission. Therefore, we must work our way through the discipline with great care and discernment in order to ensure that we are the ministers of life, not death. So, let's do our best to understand what Peter is saying and what he's not saying. To slaves, Peter is asking them to abide by their masters whether or not they are just. He specifically calls out the gracious quality of suffering unjustly. This is hard. And Peter knows the servants in no way deserve this treatment. They are God's children after all, full and valued persons. But it's here in this hard moment when Peter reminds the slaves whose example they have to follow. He quotes Isaiah 53. He points to the incredible injustice done to our sinless Savior who submitted himself to suffering for the sake of others. Peter is saying that for their own sake and the sake of others, there's something to be said for submitting oneself to suffering, even and especially if it's unjust. Pause. In case you're wondering if Peter is suggesting that the universal godly response to injustice injustice is passive acceptance, let us correct ourselves now, full stop. If we are wise, we will take all of Scripture into consideration when we read passages like this. While Christ willingly and unjustly suffered on the cross, 
he also stood up to those who oppressed others, and he actively reached in and supernaturally transformed the lives of those who were suffering. Also, is Peter suggesting that slaves passively endure? Actually, as I study this, it seemed to me that he was asking them to radically endure. Socrates' wife once said to him, I think you too often suffer unjustly. To which he replied, Would you have me suffer justly? If someone does not deserve it and yet endures suffering with grace and without embitterment, a sort of power is communicated to the world and even to yourself. It says there's something in your dignity, your character, your self-worth so fixed, so anchored, so established that it simply cannot be taken away by the oppression of this world. That's powerful. Likewise, Peter turns to address the wives. He is especially focused on wives whose husbands are not Christian. There are far more Christian women than men at this point in the church's growth, so this dynamic relationship, Christian wife, non-Christian husband, was common. And he lists the ways that wives should grow in the fruit of Christ, in the fruit of Christ-like submission in their lives, and to increase their own witness. Be respectful, be pure, have a gentle, quiet spirit. In essence, be above reproach according to most cultural expectations. This included a call to modesty. He mentions braids and gold and clothing, but beauty standards totally are relative from culture to culture over time. And this is about the heart of the matter, not establishing universal rules. Peter points to Sarah. She actually was a woman of beauty, we know, but she was known for her submission to Abraham. And these dynamics were tricky for them, with their feet on the ground in this time. If women were especially elaborate in their appearance or careless in their social interactions, it invited suspicion or scorn from the outside world or anger or maybe worse from their husbands. And of course, there were good husbands too. But we're dealing with the possibility of unjust suffering as well. Peter is challenging the Christian wives of his time to accept the gift of submission, even if it's not what they deserve. This is hard. But the fruit of submission is gentleness and peace. And if that's true, it can confound those in authority, piquing their curiosity till they end up asking, what's this all about? Through their conduct, the wives of worldly husbands may come to know Christ. Now, pause again. Let me be extraordinarily clear. Even in the first century, Peter does not want submission and marriage to mean being a passive doormat for a wicked husband. No way. The commentators suggested that Peter advises these first century wives to submit to their husbands so long as it was safe and within the bounds of Christian living. But otherwise, no. We already know that they were attending church, which was outside of the first century husband's wishes. Thus, thus the occasion for this complexity So this wasn't a universal call to compliance. Ultimately, it's a call to Christ-likeness. Also, continue the pause. None of these things are meant to be applied without discernment, maturity, and the wisdom of the whole biblical canon. Take quietness and gentleness. Well, in Proverbs 31, a woman is praised for being courageous and strong. And take Sarah. Yes, she obeyed Abraham and called him Lord, But Peter doesn't mention the times Abraham had to listen to Sarah. She actually, God actually tells him to heed Sarah in Genesis 21. Did Jesus allow women to be beaten? No. 
Did Jesus allow women to be excluded from his presence when they spoke to him? No. He defended their safety and welcomed their voice. So what do we make of this? We see that Peter's urging these wives to use the gift of submission because Christ offered it to them and to use it for the sake of their, of their own lives and for the furthering of the kingdom. Now we turn to the husbands. The last section that addresses the husbands is curiously short, but that's because they were both less in number and they were also in a less vulnerable position in the society. Hence, here, Peter urges Christian husbands to be understanding and honoring to their wives, to know her, respect her. The term live with probably implies elements of the marriage bed and is therefore asking husbands to be strictly faithful to their wives. And though he calls wives the weaker vessel, that did really bother me, by the way, but it's very likely this means she is the more socially vulnerable of the two and the physically less strong. I did grow up liking to arm wrestle people, so it also kind of bothered me, but it's okay. <clears throat> In first century Greco-Roman culture, the wife was more vulnerable. She was likely less strong, and frankly was probably at least 10 years younger than her husband, maybe more, and would seriously, sincerely benefit from his honor and understanding to prevent injustice. And furthermore, Peter declares, he should do this because wives are co-heirs of God's grace. They're not the lesser heir. They are heirs with their husbands. This would be radical language for a first century man in a strictly patriarchal world. And though when exhorting husbands, Peter's language seems toned down when compared with others, he's actually issuing to them the greater challenge when compared to their norm. Lay down your custom privileges and treat your wife as an heir. So our second question was, what is Peter trying to incite among this persecuted people of faith? He's encouraging them to live out true freedom in their social structures through the gift of submission. And what's amazing is that there is a great gift in submission. It's a gift to yourself and a gift to the world. It's a palpable freedom only found in following Christ's example. Question three. Why does freedom in Christ have everything to do with submission? Because of the cross. You see, we're stuck. Apart from Christ, that is, we're in bondage. What bondage is that? It's the bondage of needing to get what we deserve, needing to make sure things go our way. It controls us and it enslaves us. It's so deeply ingrained that generation upon generation, we fight, we oppress, we jockey for position, we scheme, or maybe we just worry and stress and fear. How do I get what I deserve? And here's the thing, it's, it's not necessarily about whether or not you deserve this or that. Everyone deserves life, love, and value. No one deserves oppression and injustice. That's not up for debate. What's on the table here is your character and ultimately your freedom. Peter says, this world is hard. I know you're being persecuted and I know you're under the authority of others. But let your character be like that of our suffering servant, Jesus Christ, and you will be free. Not without problems, not without injustice, but you will know the fruit of submission. 
And as opposed to the fruit of vanity, pride, conceit, bitterness, vengeance, all these things enslave and consume you, leaving you brittle and burdened. But the fruit of submission, it forges your character into the pattern of Christ's And the pattern of Christ is the way of the cross. The cross, the ultimate act of submission, the ultimate injustice. Look at Isaiah 53. It was our Old Testament reading today, and Peter quoted it heavily in his passage. Christ suffered. He did not deserve it. He committed no sin, no deceit. He was reviled, but he didn't revile in return. And by this ultimate act of subordination, by his wound, we are healed. In first century Greco-Roman culture, it was absolutely shocking that the Son of God would willingly, silently take the form of a slave. To willingly give up all his rights, even unto death, the death on the cross, and not for him, but for the sake of others. This just made no sense to the categories and systems of their world. This is profound, and it is complex. One of the general applications of today's scripture is never to oversimplify or carelessly apply nuanced texts. For instance, if we were to take Christ's submission unto death and flatten it, reduce it, it could seem the point to sacrifice, or the point of this is to sacrifice your worth no matter the cause or cost or without any regard for one's value. This is why, I'm sorry to say for those of you who like this book, But the giving tree is not an accurate allegory of Christ's sacrifice. The tree gives and gives to this boy throughout his life. The tree gets cut down to a stump. And in the book, it ends with the reader, you're just kind of feeling like, okay, I guess the tree's purpose was to just passively give its life away. That's not the character of Christ we're going for. Contrast this with the allegory of Aslan in the, character, in the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm just about finished reading The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe a uh, second time to my kids. In the passage where Aslan willingly walks to the stone table, he is so sad and so lonely. He's dejected, but he submits to what's before him. He arrives at this ancient table. He's shorn and beaten and bound And with the knife poised over his neck, the witch informs Aslan, the boy you thought you saved by taking his place? Well, I'm going to kill him anyway. You've done all of this. You've submitted yourself to suffering and to death for nothing. With that knowledge, she says, despair and die. Now, here's the difference between the giving tree and Aslan. Aslan knows the deeper magic that the witch does not know. The deeper magic was that when an innocent death replaces the guilty one on the stone table, the table itself would break and death would work backwards. Aslan would rise again and undo all the wrong that had been done. You see, Aslan didn't forget his value It was because of his value, his knowledge of the deep magic that he submitted in the first place. Aslan knew he didn't deserve it, but his reality was not ultimately, ultimately subject to the powers of this world, and the witch never saw that coming. 
Christ's death on the cross was not passive. It was a radical act of submission. Christ 100% knew his value. It was rooted in the deeper magic. And by that, of course, I mean the power and the love of the Trinity. And it was because of this deep reality that he knew he could and should submit himself to such injustice. He would never be defined by worldly power. He would never be confined by a worldly death. Friends, this broke the stone table. It broke all the hierarchical structures. It broke the vicious cycle of humanity's bondage. Jesus says, enough! You're done! You're free! And we're called to follow this example for our own good and for the sake of the world. I'm aware that it's one thing to hear and possibly agree with such things. It's probably quite another to learn to embrace and live out this freedom, freedom and submission. On behalf of the staff, I invite you, any of you to reach out to us. Our emails are on the back. Come and grab us. If you desire to dive into deeper realities of finding this kind of freedom in Christ with your specific context and with your specific burdens, And I want to mention specifically, Deacon Cheryl has a forgiveness teaching that dovetails with aspects of what I'm talking about, and she'll meet with anyone, Um, but she's hoping to hold another seminar on this forgiveness sometime this year, and I encourage you to keep your ears and eyes open for that. I just want us all to face into this and receive this gift and let it change your life. Freedom in Christ is beautiful, and it's worth the effort. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If he says to them, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And of course, in our gospel passage today, but Jesus called them and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it power over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a hard, hard teaching. But it's a transformative one. And this is a teaching for everyone. For Jew and Greek, slave and master, male and female. And it's a gift because it lets you walk through this difficult life without desperately needing to ensure you get your fair shake. This says, you can take everything from me, but in the end there's something you can never take, my identity as the beloved of God. There is a deeper reality from which you draw your value. No mortal can take this from you. This is your freedom. Now, I don't want any of us to embrace a deformed version of submission, one that would wickedly perpetuate a cycle of oppression, the, one, the cycle Christ is imploring us to break. But secondly, oh, let us not reject it altogether because it's too offensive to our egos. Peter is imploring his readers to follow Christ's example Because in that, he knows the very power of the gospel will prevail in people's lives, and it will speak loudly to the world. Amen.
Lord, I pray that you would make our hearts soft and ready for the change you would have us make. Give us the vulnerability and ability to follow Christ and his example of submission and his love and his understanding of where his value lies. I pray this for all of us. Amen. Please stand. We affirm our faith.